The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I was 12 when I started fighting, but I've heard of some who were even younger than that. Yes, yes, let's get to the real issue. How many Cardassians did you kill? I mean, personally. I didn't keep count. Oh, I think you did. And I'm sure your total wasn't limited to military personnel. After all, the most effective terrorist weapon was random violence. Don't leave now, Major. It's just getting good. How many Cardassian civilians did you kill? Look, nothing justifies genocide. What you call genocide, I call a day's work. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 9th, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, not right wing. Just right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today where the number, as always, to call is 519-661-3600. If you want to join in in our very hot conversation today, you can email us also at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Our subject and theme for today will be homegrown terrorism and its connection to Islam. We'll also be looking at terrorism in liberal times and how the liberal environment we're in plays into the terrorism that we're dealing with. And we also want to take a look at the European situation and the situation around the world in terms of what is happening on the terrorist front. Robert, uh, it's been amazing what's, how the airwaves of all the stations are just burning right now with uh, issues of tolerance and issues of, of course, this pastor trying to burn the Koran in Florida this well, weekend. Well, that which and is, Cordoba House as well have been really insightful yes. for a lot of people. But, uh, you know, in the wake of late August's uh, local bust of an Islamic terrorist suspect and with quite the unbelievable, at least on the surface, the attention being given to the planned burning of the Koran this coming Saturday by a single lone pastor in Florida, and given the reality of the threat before us, it was rather inevitable that we should be taking a closer look at this issue. Uh, later in the show, of course, we'll see the same issue discussed from a European perspective and uh, seeing how the issue of Islam is manifesting itself in that part of the world. Um, you know, when, when dealing with this issue, I have to make s- some points very clear. Back on September 17th, I made it clear, did a show right here on Just Right called God, Religion, Morality, State and Religion, in which I spent the whole hour describing why religion and politics are essentially one and the same thing. All the world's religions generally emanated from a political movement. And that includes, well, all of them, everyone I can think of. I don't have to enumerate them. But a lot of people do not understand other people's religions, the relationship between the people and the religion. One of the things that we have to learn to make distinguishing points on is that, you know, Muslims are the people. Islam is an ideology. Jihadists may not be representative of Muslims, and I don't think they are but they do represent Islam. So if I was to be asked the question, you know, should we burn the Koran, I'll say just exactly what I said on CJBK radio yesterday. I said, no. I said, no, you don't do that. It's evidence. I said, expose it. 
And as with the origins of almost all religions, Islam is a political ideology first and foremost. That's the first thing that I think people would learn about it if they were to read the Quran. They would also discover that it is, an, you know, Islam is utterly incompatible with freedom. It's incompatible with democratic governance as we know it, in which voting minorities are protected by individual rights. But it is compatible with majority rule, under which minority rights are trampled. In fact, I would say on this issue, its strategy depends very much. Um, Islam is incompatible with capitalism, with reality, with reason, with individualism, or even consent. Islam is intolerant, which makes me scratch my head when I hear Harper this morning saying, quote, my God, my Christ is a tolerant God. Well, I'm going, why aren't jihadis up in arms over this statement? I mean, here's a leader of a country that's actually at war with them, making a statement like that. Is, is Harper being tolerant of Reverend Terry Jones? <laughs> is Harper being, and, and, and yet, is he being tolerant of what he thinks he's fighting over there? It's really amazing. Um, Islam certainly calls for violence. It's irrational. It's the world's number one problem, and we've got plenty. I, I place number two as communism, which paves the way for all forms of fascism and totalitarianism. And, of course, there is only one version of Islam. As Capitalism magazine writer Bosch Fostwin writes in his July 3, 2010 commentary, you know, Western intellectuals and commentators refer to the enemy's ideology as Islamic fundamentalism, Islamic extremism, totalitarian Islam, Islamofascism, political Islam, militant Islam, bin Ladenism, Islamo-Nazism, radical Islam, etc., etc. The enemy calls it Islam. The term militant Islam is redundant. Islam is the enemy's ideology, and evading that fact only helps its agents. Islam is a political religion. The idea of a separation of mosque and state is unheard of in the Muslim world. And most notably, and so truly, Faustin notes that the only reason we're even talking about Islam is because we've been forced to by its jihad. I, I got to tell you, in my case, until 9-11, like other religions, I gave Islam generally no notice whatsoever. However, unlike other religions, Islam demands not only our attention, but our obedience. And that's when I have to pay attention. I haven't got any choice in that one, Robert. I'd rather be talking about something else. But I have to tell you, something that was very shocking was uh, an interview that took place last week on CJBK on 1290 with Andy Udman, and he had some members of the local Islamic community on. And um, Tarek Fatah was one of the guests, who, of course, is a very critical person of the Islamic um, state of things, let's put it that way. He's a founder of the Muslim Canadian Congress, had to quit since. And he said he wasn't surprised by the news of a terrorist being found in London. And the scary thing he said, Robert, was he says, I can assure you it won't be the last one. The reason being we're fighting malaria by hitting individual mosquitoes rather than by draining the swamp. <laughs> it is a fight that Canada's and America's leadership has not yet understood. And that seems to be clear in the comments we're hearing today. The ideology of Islamism and armed jihad comes straight from the Muslim Brotherhood and is deeply penetrated in the mosque establishment of this country. Now, he points out the fact that 90% of Muslims are not associated with any kind of mosque, um, but again, he says that he, can't, he doesn't know of many mosques that aren't affected this way. Locally, we had uh, Muhammad Yassin and his brother Hassin, president of the Islamic Center on Pond Mills Road, 
uh, they refuted Tariq Fatah's comment. You know, they said here in London, we've got a population of 25,000 Muslims, and you'll never hear a word of hate or ritual prayers calling for the denunciation or the killing of infidels in, in their mosque. They say they have no outside funding. They're a community-led organization, and et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, I guess it comes down to whether you believe what you're hearing, and that's part of the problem, isn't it? Terrorism is here to stay, experts says, from the London Free Press, August 26, 2010. New reality. John Thompson, president of the McKenzie Institute, says it'll be a fact of life for a couple more decades at least. Now, of course, John was a guest on our show here on June 17th when we discussed jihad, the Western world's barely recognized war. And we also actually came to ask the question, protest and terrorism coming to a city near you? And sure enough, a few weeks later, that has happened. Terrorism is going to be a part of Canadian life for the next 20 years, this security expert said Wednesday, as I'm reading from the Free Press. It took a couple of decades to build up to this, and this is going to be a fact of our lives for a couple more decades at least, says John Thompson, president of the McKenzie Institute, which studies terrorism and extremism. Public Safety Minister Vic Toews, speaking to a Toronto business crowd August 9th, said radicalization and its potential for violence are an increasing concern in Canada. There are homegrown Islamists and other extremists here in Canada, Toast said. Our concern is with extremist ideologies that lead individuals to espouse or engage in violence. These individuals reject the values on which our country is based, and they must be stopped. The speed of indoctrination and radicalization of young Canadians makes it challenging for law enforcement intelligence agencies to keep up, end quote. Kind of a scary comment, isn't it, Robert? Indeed. And then we have Salim Mansour, who was also a guest on this show several times, who said, let's look, and he's a Muslim himself, and he said, stop quibbling over terror profiling. And he talked about the arrests in London here, you know, of four of eight suspects, I guess it's down to seven suspects, now. I think one of them has been let off, um, allegedly linked with global Islamist movement, says, reveals again how vulnerable Canada and other democracies are to Islamist homegrown terrorism. The arrested suspects are Canadian Muslims with college degrees of Pakistani and Mideast origin in their late 20s, or in their 20s, sorry, and two of them trained as medical professionals. And apparently they fit the profile of the segment of young Muslim males in the West who are embracing the terror-filled jihadi uh, ideology of Islamism and, uh, and allegedly prepared to kill and maim their fellow citizens. And uh, you know, it says that these alleged terrorists are not emerging from the ranks of the desperate poor, hungry and homeless, as we always hear. We always hear that, you know, it's the poor that drive this when it's not the case. They come mostly from the aspiring middle-class background of immigrant families. And their education, ironically, makes them readily susceptible to the sort of identity politics that thrives on the cocktail of third-world resentments and grievances. One wonders what kind of education they're getting, then, doesn't it? Don't you? Doesn't it make you think about that? Now, as I've written on numerous occasions, Islamism is a political ideology, and this is uh, Salim Mansour talking, dressed in religious garments. It is a modern phenomenon, a totalitarian movement alongside the other two similar movements from the last century, fascism and communism. And appealing to those college-educated Muslims, by the way, fascism and communism appeal to college-educated people too, uh, who feel acutely distressed by the disparity between their native culture and the modern West. Islamism appeals to the wounded pride of Muslims, and it offers a hodgepodge of incoherent explanations to dress their wounds by blaming the West for the ills of the Muslim world. 
There will be more such cases, predicts Mr. Mansour. And the terrible thought is that some of these homegrown terrorist plots may succeed. And of course, there's ample evidence that that has happened. But he says the time to quibble over profiling is long past. This is not a matter of becoming illiberal. For liberalism, which I hold dearly, says um, uh, Salim, as I do my faith tradition as a Sunni Muslim, is not a suicide pact, he said. Our common security requires a clear understanding of where our threat emanates from to focus on that threat with the necessary resources and to remove the blinders of political correctness that only weaken our efforts in fighting this. London Free Press writer Larry Corney's back in June 26 column headlined, So Much Done, So Much to Do Against Racism, tells of his experience with a forwarded email that he described as especially vile, quote, Quote, it enumerated the many ways in which all Muslim women are exploited by Muslim men. It chronicled with seemingly authority and, ge and sweeping generalization the ways by which men, with the blessing of Islam, denigrate women, trample their rights, and otherwise dishonor them. And it concluded with the by now predictable warnings about the folly of viewing Islam as a peaceful religion, even as Canada and the U.S. are busily expunging all traces of Christianity from public life. I was upset by the wholesale generalizations of the message, says Cornies. I wondered how one effectively responds to oversimplification and insinuation that border on hatred, end quote. Now, Cornies calls this racism from some unbeknownst reason, I don't know why, um, which the email in question has, I don't think, anything to do with. It's a traditional slur by the ignorant. Well, a Muslim who is black or white or Arab or Chinese or pink and blue with yellow polka dots would be subject to the same generalizations, wouldn't he? It's not about racism. No. It's not about the color of a person's skin, Mr. Cornies, and others who think like this. It's about the color of your ideas, and that's what's at issue. And some ideas need to be killed. And one of those liberal ideas is tolerance of intolerance. <laughs> that's an idea that has to be killed. It's a contradiction in terms, and it's impossible to practice in reality. And with that in thought, I'll let you hear from someone who knows a lot more about this than either you or I do, Robert. From CapitalismMagazine.com, where I heartily direct our listeners to hear the entire speech that you're about to hear a part of. Here is an excerpt from Ian Hersey Alley's speech a couple of months ago at the University of Wisconsin. Like many public speakers who reject modern liberal ideas and certainly the fascist ideology of Islam, her life has been under constant threat. And in fact, one of the first things, I guess, the speech that she gave took an hour later than normal to get started. It sounded a little like the Ann Coulter experience, and she has to have bodyguards. Interesting how that happens to anybody who has even a slight of right point of view on anything. But here she is for the next, oh, six minutes or so, Ian Hersey-Alley telling you a little bit about what you should know about Islam. Is Islam a religion? Many people offset Islam against Christianity. And to be sure, Islam has a religious dimension. But I think it's more accurate to offset Islam against other political theories, because Islam is a political theory. So is communism and its more benign sister ideology, socialism just like the political philosophy of national socialism. These are all sets of ideas on how society ought to function. The concept of America is also a political creed. It's a theory, 
based on a society and how society should function. There is a defined relationship between the citizen and the state and between citizens. There is political law and a penal code. There is also family law that determines the relationship between men and women, derived from the American culture, American values, American history, and American constitution. Similarly, Islam's political and social dimension provides rules for the relationship between the state and her subjects, and the relationship between men and women, and the punishment of those who break the law. The American creed and the Islamic creed are two competing ideas. They are as different as day and night. The Quran is still the centerpiece of Islam. This book is conceptually poor, with a lack of human understanding. There is a focus on the vices and the negative adages of humanity, and no place for the innovative, creative side of man, let alone women. The ideas, thoughts, and expressions of individuals are silenced and narrowed to what the Prophet Muhammad deemed to be moral. Everything outside of his moral framework is condemned. Now, ladies and gentlemen, just imagine contracting the imagination of 1.57 billion people to that idea of one single man from the 7th century. There is nothing like a University of Wisconsin in the Arab Islamic world. There is secular law here that protects the freedom of believers to worship and unbelievers to have no faith. We have no such secular law where I come from. In Islamic countries, there is no rule of law and no separation of the realm of politics from that of Allah. Feminists attacked the idea of the female as homemaker and mother and entertainer. They fought for the rights of women to go to school, participate in higher education, to vote, and also participate in public affairs. Feminists continued to do so to this day, attacking the glass ceiling. But to me, it seems as if they only do it for white women, and they criticize only the bad ideas of the white man. Is this what has become of Western feminism? It set out as a universal movement to defend the rights of all women. But by abstaining from condemning the terrible principles held by men of color, that is, for instance, the religion of men outside the West and their cultures, Western feminism has become a force that protects only white women. Take the plight of Muslim women living here in the United States. Please put up your hand if you have heard of the story of Amina and Sahra in Texas. One, two, three, four, five, six. I was told that there are about 1,300 people here. 
Well, Amina and Sahra were killed by their Egyptian father in Texas in 2007 because he discovered they were dating American boys. They were respectively 16 and 18 years old. They were bright, healthy, beautiful, average American teenagers. Or at least they thought they were. Imagine what the reaction from feminists would be if Amina and Sarah were called Mary and Ruth, and if their father was Christian. How about the Pakistani man in a suburb of Atlanta who admitted to strangling his 25-year-old daughter Sandela to death because she wanted to leave the husband he had arranged for her to marry in Pakistan? How about Rivka Barry, a 17-year-old who converted to Christianity and is now in hiding from her own parents because Islam dictates she's an apostate and must be killed in America, not in Somalia, not in Afghanistan, not in Europe, here in the US. Why the silence? When well-meaning Westerners, eager to promote respect for minority religions and cultures, sweep practices like forced marriages and confinement under the carpet to stop society from stigmatizing Muslims, they deny countless Muslim women and girls their right to wrest their freedoms from their parents' culture and religion. Then we, by being silent, become complicit we fail to live up to the ideals and values of our democratic society, and they harm the same vulnerable minority whom we all seek to protect. And welcome back to Just Right on CHW 94.9 FM, where you can call 519-661-3600 to join in on the conversation. And that was a clip from Ian Hershey Alley, who spoke a few months ago at the University of Wisconsin. A remarkable uh, woman and a remarkable speech she gave. It took about 45 minutes, and we urge you to go to capitalistmagazine.com to see it in its entirety. You can hear a pin drop through that whole 45-minute presentation, I tell yes. you. Yes. You and I were sitting there saying, we shouldn't come in, we should just play that whole thing. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah. Ayan, is, um, Ayan Hershiali has not been the first person, as you correctly pointed out, Bob, to be um, the first person to identify Islam as more than a... Uh, more of a political ideology than a religion. Her separation also of the word Muslim from Islam is also apt, as there are many Muslims who publicly renounce many of the barbaric teachings of Islam. You only have to turn to notable Canadian Muslims, as you've mentioned before, Bob, Salim Mansour, who's been a guest on this show, or Tariq Fatah, to hear the voice of reason in moderation from that percentage of the population of Muslims. This identification of Islam as a political ideology is a proper one. As Christopher Hitchens wrote in the National Post on September 8th, quote, Islam's teachings generally exhibit suspicion of the very idea of church-state separation, unquote. Of course, he means mosque-state separation in that case. In fact, the mosque and state are practically inseparable in countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia. Islam itself has its own code of law, Sharia, which covers every aspect of life and society, from banking to marriage, to the environment, to warfare, and what better defines politics than the creation of laws. This identification of Islam as an ideology, rather than a religion, is very important in the West, as usually we do not condemn people for their religious beliefs, however bizarre they may be. We make great sport, however, 
of attacking political ideologies, and we must. And as a political ideology, Islam is an easy target for criticism and denunciation. Hitchens' article took some um, of the more common attacks at Islam by suggesting that adherents to this ideology do not, in a free society, have carte blanche to act as they see fit under the guise of a religion. His examples were polygamy, forced marriages, female circumcision, compulsory veiling of women, and censorship. To that we could add, if we are especially in Saudi Arabia or Iran, stone, stoning adulterers, mutilating the bodies of criminals, floggings, and torture, amongst many other medieval practices. I believe, Bob, I saw an article in the paper the other day hmm. where Saudi Arabia courts were looking for a doctor to volunteer to sever the spine of a man who um, injured another person. Spine broke for his a spine, back. a tooth for a tooth. Unbelievably yeah. barbaric. As a political ideology, though, these acts are mere symptoms of a greater underlying philosophy. It is your metaphysics, your, your epistemology, your ethics, and your politics which guide your behavior. We've, we've spoken of this many times on this show. In fact, that's the raison d'etre for this show. It's philosophy. For Islam, your metaphysics is the supernatural. This world is but a temporary abode on the way to some other plane of existence called heaven. Your epistemology is simple, the Quran. What you know, you know because you've been told it through the Quran. Simple as that. The word Islam itself means surrender. As in, surrender yourself, your mind, your will, to that of Muhammad, one man. Your ethics are derived from your epistemology. In other words, the Quran. You must act as the Quran dictates. No other action is possible. Your politics are also a consequence of the Quran. In the parlance of Western thought, the politics of Islam is socialism. The individual is subservient to the will of society, to the will of the majority, the community, the mullahs. There's very little difference between the politics of Islam and the politics of our own Western socialists. This will explain one of the reasons we see the left go silent when we discuss Islamic politics, because we're discussing their politics too. As Ayan Hirsi Ali said, the ideology of Islam is incompatible with the ideology of the United States. And to this, I would add, to any Western country. Canada and the United States, to one degree or another, value the individual as an end to himself, not as a means to some other's ends. Our values such as freedom, freedom of thought, of speech, of expression, the notion of liberty, and property rights are contrary to Islam. As it turns out, these values are also contrary to the forces on the left who have opposed freedom and capitalism for over a hundred years of modern history. Socialism and its many, many variants and subgroups such as radical feminism, environmentalism, and trade unionism have been denouncing freedom and capitalism for generations. I have no doubt that they agree wholeheartedly with the denouncing of the West when it comes from the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or any insurgent being held in Guantanamo. Any political movement of the left has two major tools at their, disposable, at their disposal, propaganda and violence. The propaganda of Islam is the Quran, 
and the pontifications of the radical imams. The violence is both obvious and subtle, as obvious as planes being flown into buildings and as subtle as a fatwa against writers and movie makers. I should say as subtle as a <laughs> gunshot to the head. Yeah. <laughs> the propaganda of the left is everywhere, from our schools and universities to the media and the Michael Moore films. The violence is more subtle than obvious. It was certainly obvious just scant decades ago when the left decimated tens of millions in Europe, the Soviet Union, and Asia. But today we have democracy, and violence is craftily hidden inside kangaroo courts, like our so-called human rights tribunals. However, actual violence still exists, as we witnessed this summer when anti-capitalist thugs smashed windows and burned police cars at international conferences in Toronto. It also exists in waves of protest marches in Paris and Athens by whining trade unionists who might have to actually work for a living or have their countries face financial ruin. So when Muslim women and girls are treated as objects or murdered for their desire for even the smallest of freedoms, don't expect the left to hold up, uh, to go to arms at Islam. When planes fly into buildings, don't expect them to lead the charge for freedom. Remember Prime Minister Gretchen saying that the U.S. brought 9-11 upon themselves? And when and if Israel is attacked by a nuclear Iran, don't expect sympathy from the union bosses or the university professors here in the West. They will be watching it on CNN with smiles on their faces, and political leaders will be calling for, for calm and trying to appease our new friend with the bomb, Iran. Part of the solution for de-radicalizing de Islam and winning the jihad is for Canadians and Americans to recognize the same anti-freedom and anti-capitalist forces in our own Western populations and institutions. Once we recognize that the Islamists and the socialists are part and parcel of the same dangerous ideology of altruism, we can, can begin, we can begin to fight this continual threat to peace and freedom. The war against jihad is a war of ideas, and we have to equip ourselves with intellectual ammunition. The target may not always be young, impressionable Muslim men. It may be the white, aging, middle-class professors in our universities who write papers and books condemning capitalism as selfish. It may also be your child's eighth-grade teacher who plays Michael Moore films over and over again instead of teaching them how to read. It might be the animal rights advocate who thinks that humans are, less, are of less value than seals. Or it may be the trade unionist who spews hatred for Israel. Whomever the target for this philosophical war, as always, Bob, reality, reason, self, and consent will be the ideas which will conquer superstition, irrationality, collectivism, and violence. I agree. And before we go to this next break, just one more comment. Um, of course, the hatred of Jews has been not just uh, an Islamic uh, phenomenon, it's been worldwide. 
for for a thousand years. Yes, and it's interesting. Uh, a Jewish representative, Andrew Roberts, uh, recently spoke to the British House of Commons on Ju- July nineteenth, and he noted that this was amazing. Although they make up less than one half of one percent of the world's population, between nineteen one and nineteen fifty, Jews won fourteen percent of all Nobel prizes awarded for literature and science, and between fifty one and two thousand, Jews won thirty two percent of the Nobel prizes for medicine, thirty two percent for physics, thirty nine percent for economics and 29 percent for science yet we tend to treat israel like a leper on the international scene threatening her with academic boycotts if she builds a separation wall that has so far reduced suicide bombings by 95 percent over three years isn't that amazing yes and here's something i did not know this just blew me away her majesty the queen has been on the throne for 57 years and in that time has undertaken 250 official visits to 129 countries, yet has not once set foot in Israel. Is that right? She has visited 14 Arab countries, so it cannot have been that she wasn't in the region. And when we come back after this, you'll be hearing from a fellow called Shai Tekoa, I think is how his name is pronounced, and he does a show out of Europe uh, called uh, Deprogram Program. That'll be on the other side of the break. But first, a little smile talking about this. You can always count on Yes Minister for that, and we'll be back after this break. Luke! Yes, Prime Minister. Have you read this? We voted against Israel in the UN last night. Yes, Prime Minister. But I gave express instructions that we were to abstain. I think not, Prime Minister. I said quite clearly to the Foreign Secretary that I felt very strongly that we should not take sides. That's quite right. The Foreign Secretary noted your very strong feeling. But he did nothing about it. (laughs) With respect, Prime Minister, he did. He asked our UN ambassador whether we should consider abstaining. What did the ambassador do? He said no. (laughs) You mean the Foreign Office can simply ignore the wishes of the Prime Minister? Certainly not, Prime Minister. No, no, no. They take full account of them in coming to their decision. But events move rapidly. There were important factors with our relationship with the Arabs last night that were not known to you when you took your view. It wasn't possible to get through to you in time. I'm on the phone, you know. Don't let it upset you, Jim. We're used to it. It happens all the time. I told them to abstain. Well, it's well known that in the British Foreign Office, an instruction from the Prime Minister becomes a request from the Foreign Secretary, then a recommendation from the Minister of State, and finally just a suggestion to the Ambassador, if it ever gets that far. Thank you. Lachaim. Cheers. Well, Jim, what are you going to do about St. George's? You know about that? Israeli intelligence says that East Yemen are going to invade St. George's Island within the next few days. What? So that's the connection. Now, your foreign office have agreed with East Yemen uh, that they'll make strong diplomatic representations but do nothing. In return, the Yemenis will let you keep your airport contract after they're taken over. There'll be uproar. But that's only the start. I happen to know from our ambassador in Washington that the Americans are going to support the present government of St. George's. In the UN? No, in battle on St. George's Island. They'll send in an airborne division backed up by the Seventh Fleet. The Americans invading a Commonwealth country? The palace will hit the roof. I shall look ridiculous. Why didn't the Americans tell me? They don't trust you. Why not? Because you trust the Foreign Office. Oh, I
haven't seen the whole uh, Time Magazine cover story uh, this week, hard copy. I only read the tease on the Time website mentioned last week. Uh, but after reading um, Phyllis Chesler today, uh, it seems to me that their writer, Carl Vick, is pretty ticked off at us as Israelites for enjoying life when I, I guess we should be begging our leaders to uh, make peace with the Ancient Ones still suffering all these years. Carl Vick seems terribly uncomfortable with Israelis uh, living as well as we do, enjoying life as much as we do, when the whole world hates us, uh, more precisely, the enlightened like him. Uh, heck, I feel so laid back. Uh, I'm no longer as upset as I used to be when Time Magazine indulges in uh, bashing. In my years of uh, research, I uh, once came across Time's first cover story on the new Jewish state, written in the middle of uh, its war for independence, 1948, uh, when the new army of Jews, of Israelis, were uh, likened to like Nazis who had recently so horribly treated the Jews. If memory serves, uh, while the first time cover story on Israel came in August of 48, after three months of fighting, as a weekly news magazine, it of course had reported news briefs on the situation, and I think their very first article uh, on the situation concerned not the new state of Israel, but the Arab refugees created by the new state of Israel. These refugees that came as the result of the new state. I mean, how righteous could this new state be if by its birth it has given to all these Arab refugees, still not yet ancient Palestinians? And never mind that over the previous three years in Europe, 1945 to 1948, some 10 million ethnic Germans had been uh, turned into refugees, forced from their homes in some six European countries in order to go back and live in Germany, uh, even if, if they had been living in uh, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Holland, etc. for decades. Uh, that was a result of the Potsdam Conference in July of 1945 between Churchill, Truman, and Stalin. And apart from the uh, those who were made refugees after Potsdam, there were uh, thousands of ethnic Germans who had fled before the war ended, fled for their own safety with the retreating German armies back into Germany. They were terrified of their neighbors. Uh, perhaps hundreds of thousands of ethnic Germans were murdered by angry neighbors after the war for what the Germans had done. And these people afterwards pleaded to be allowed to return to their homes. But the big three said, no, too bad, tough darts. You're not going back to the homes you abandoned. Uh, you will remain in Germany and restart your lives as penniless homeless people. And of course, that's how I ended up here in Canada, Robert. How was it? <laughs> yeah. My parents were among uh, those people that were expunged from the country of Hungary at the time. Oh, I see. And I was the only person in my family actually born in Germany while they were waiting to uh, emigrate to Canada. And uh, they were waiting for their um, visas. They would have either been picked to go to New York City, which I might have ended up had not the mm. visa for Canada come through first. So I'm the only person in my family born in Germany. <laughs> All the rest of my family is born here and previous to that in Hungary. So it's an interesting, I guess I'm a, sta I'm a stateless child in some ways. But just an interesting observation. You're listening to Just Trade on CHRW 94.9 FM, and if you wish to call, you can at 519-661-3600. Uh, and in my last um, quarter hour there, Bob was talking about an article by Christopher Hitchens. There's some fascinating observations in that article that I 
like to get into a little bit more sure. because he not only talks about um, not only talks about Islam, he talks about religion itself, and he asks the question: Am I am I in favor of an untrammeled, free exercise of religion? And he says, No, I am not. And you'll understand what he means when he when when you identify that there are many religions out there who have very strange beliefs and practices. The beliefs are one thing, but the practices are something entirely different. And uh, he brings up examples in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He brings up Orthodox Judaism and um, some bizarre uh, practices that they, they, that they sometimes do and have since given up. And he talks about the Church of Scientology, the Unification Church of Sun Myung Moon, and the Ku Klux Klan, which, by the way, is a faith-based uh, activity. And he ends the article with a great great um, idea here is the taming and domestication of religion is one of the unceasing chores of civilization and I wholeheartedly agree with that and I don't think that we should be treating Islam with kid gloves anymore and being tolerant of violence and tolerant of uh, behavior that is totally medieval and uncivilized and actually there was an article as well by uh, Barbara Kay in the National Post just a couple of days ago as well, on the uh, same, same day, actually, where she talks about a, um, a correspondent she had called Lois Hashimoto, who uh, recently died, and she gave her a, uh, an obituary which t- and, and, and actually loved her for her very candid view of Canada calling us um, Western guilt. For example, she said that when two Native children were torn from the arms of her friend, their loving, responsible, adoptive white mother, and returned to a dysfunctional Native caregiver on cultural grounds, she wrote disparagingly to me, that is to Barbara Kay, O Canada, where minority group rights trump individual rights every time. What do you think of that, Bob? Amazing. Um, I understand we have our Euro correspondent, Paul Lambert, with us Paul Lambert, yes. Is Paul there? Yes, how's it going, lads? Hi, Paul. <laughs> Hello, Paul. Glad to hear you. I understand uh, the Taliban has been threatening attacks on uh, U.S. and Europe. Is, is that something new to you, where you're from? Oh, no, not at all. Uh, in fact, I understand you, you just in London, you had some incident, uh, someone arrested uh, for uh, suspected terrorism or planning attack. Yeah, I, I heard, actually, I listened to, to Udman on that, and that sort of thing would not make the front page here. That sort of thing happens all the time. All the time here. It's, it's, it's quite an, uh, an anomaly why we had the Toronto 18 arrested uh, a year or two ago. Now we have seven or eight uh, local people from Ottawa and London arrested, and it is making the news here, and it's uh, opened up an entire can of worms. But to hear that it's commonplace in Europe is really disheartening. I think it was just a matter of time on your side, doesn't it? I, I guess so. I, I don't know. Is it? Do you think, Paul, it, it might be because that um, Canada, the United States, and uh, the West in general, over here at least, uh, in, in North America, have societies that are much more uh, built on the individual rights, uh, where, of course, this Europe is thousands of years old and has a lot of baggage, of uh, well, cultural baggage, where people are not so free as they are over here. Do you think that might have something to do with the uh, ease with which uh, Islam is uh, taking over over there? 
So that, that's certainly part of it. Um, another part over here is this uh, this false sense of guilt, I think, a false sense of guilt over the old uh, colonial past uh, of the metropolitan powers that somehow we need to give the other side, uh, the Arabs, the benefit of the doubt and such. Uh, and uh, any, any, I say any, we're very much more reluctant to uh, stand up against any sort of foreign ideas in Europe. Now you've, you've corresponded with both Bob and I and um, said to us basically in your emails that you have very little hope for Europe. Is that still the case, you think? Yeah, that I wanted to ask there? about that myself because yeah. apparently, I guess, with the last time I asked you that question on the show, you felt uh, maybe you didn't give the, quite quite the answer you wanted to give. Is that right? No, Paul? I think it was actually uh, you, Robert uh, Vaughn, who actually yeah. asked me that. And, oh. Yeah, I, I did feel rather nonplussed. Um, the honest answer is uh, within the context of our mainstream society. I have, n- I have no hope for it uh, solving, uh, fixing itself on its own anyway. And uh, this is certainly part of it. Uh, and the apologists uh, on our side uh, are not helping the situation at all. I think they're really leading us into the fire. Now, over here, uh, at least in Canada, and especially in the United States, I must say, there are organizations and groups. Uh, for example, in Canada, you have uh, a lot of university professors, as much as I just derided a lot of them. There are still quite a few out there who are um, very reasoned uh, advocates for freedom, for capitalism. Uh, Fraser Institute, for example, comes out with some great position papers on the topic. You have down in the United States, the Cato Institute, uh, a lot of institutes down there, um, a Foundation for Economic Freedom. Freedom, um, a lot of people down there who understand freedom. Are there not um, similar organizations over in Europe like that? Well, I think we just lost our connection, Robert. Oh, well, it sounded a little iffy, yeah, actually. We're, go- we're, going, <laughs> we're going to have to try and get it back right after this. Let's take a break, and we'll listen to this, and then when we come back, hopefully we'll have Paul back with us again on a better line. And we'll just take a break right now. Uh, there was a really interesting piece in the J-Post last week uh, by their medical writer, uh, Judy Siegel, she's very good, about research being done at Haifa University jointly by a Jewish academic psychologist and an Arabic academic psychologist on the difficulty Arab children uh, have in learning to read their own language. Uh, indeed, listen to this, they find it easier to learn to read Hebrew and English and the reason for that is something I noticed years ago in taking a few classes in basic Arabic, the graphological complexity of writing Arabic letters and words, which I found indicative of the Arab personality. For instance, uh, Hebrew has 22 letters, five of which, for reasons that don't concern us now, are written in a different way when they appear at the end of a word. Kaf, Mem, Nun, Pe, and Sadi. Sort of like a stylistic flourish. In Arabic, by contrast, every letter of their 20-something alphabet is written in four different ways, every one depending on its position in the word. At the beginning, at the end, in the middle, and on special occasions. And that is not all. Arabic has no block letters It has only cursive script. The letters flow into one another and and sometimes pile up on top of one another. Uh, Sometimes, in some combinations, the order is reversed. A pair of letters might be read in the wrong direction, not right to left like Hebrew, but momentarily in the middle of a word, left to right. 
decades ago, I heard the theory that one of the reasons for the vast illiteracy in, in Arabic is the difficulty of the written language. And here, lo and behold, is research finally backing that up. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, as soon as Osama bin Laden was implicated in the plot, I guarantee you, as soon as they said on CNN, Osama bin Laden, he got a phone call from Japan. You screw up big time! How can you be so stupid? You don't have a history channel? You don't know, you don't know. Oh, oh no, oh trust me, you don't know. We used to think just like you. We kick that ass in a Pearl Harbor. We drop over a thousand bombs. We come back home, we party. Who the man? I the man. Who the man? I the man. But we already pissed them off. They come to us. They didn't drop 20 bomb, a thousand bomb, you know? They dropped two bomb. Just the two. The bomb was so big, even our penis got smaller. And you see, everybody got picked on, everybody had a fabulous time. But no, no, this is what people are afraid of. Us enjoying making fun of each other. Listen, look at me white people when I say this. Do you know how many white people have died in the history of America so that we could have the fundamental freedom of speech to say what we feel? See, I wish that you had my freedom of speech. I wish that you knew what it was like to really have fun, but some of you don't and you think you do, please, tell my jokes at your job on Monday. And welcome back to Just Right on CHW 94.9 FM. And just before the break, we had lost our connection with Paul Lambert, our York correspondent. Are you back, Paul? Yeah, we were cut off on some rather mysterious circumstances. I guess we have the makings of a new conspiracy theory. <laughs> oh, you will have to write about that. Just before we broke, though, I was sort of asking the question, I don't know if you've heard it all, but I was asking, does Europe have some of the... Uh, foundations for freedom uh, over there that we do here, um, the institutions, the professors, the uh, intellectuals um, that we do over here discussing things like objectivism and freedom and capitalism. They, they do, but they're, they're never within the uh, in the context of an academic setting, formal academic setting. You have to go see them at uh, a commercial auditoria and things like that. Is that right? Uh, Is that because the universities over there are shunning things like freedom? And well, yes. Well, yes, and they're afraid of the violence that will occur, e even if they wanted to have these people show up. Uh, you know. Much like perhaps um, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu being kicked out of uh, McGill University and uh, yes. Ann Coulter yes. being kicked out of University of Ottawa, that thing, that, that I guess is commonplace over in Europe? Well, it's been so long since uh, they've ever had someone so controversial show up. I don't know what it would be like today, but I, I know just the, 
that the police are not equipped to handle violence. I mean, it would not just be protests and the odd bottles thrown. It would be cars set on fire and maybe gunshots as well. Well, that is really discouraging. And I, I have to say, if that is the situation over in Europe, then perhaps I might share your view that uh, there may be no hope for Europe. <laughs> well, that's not very uh, in, you know, ho- hopeful <laughs> anyway. I, I'm curious, Paul. We hear it all over here in, in North America, but is this Florida pastor, um, Reverend Terry Jones, I think is his name, who's planning to burn the Koran this Saturday in Florida, is this big news in Europe? Have you even heard about it over there? Oh, yes, I've heard about it. It's not front page or anything like that, and it's not making up the, the debate pages. Um, but, uh, yeah, we certainly heard about that. What, just on... Because if, if you're reading the news here, you, you get the impression that the whole Mideast is up in arms over this thing, that I, I, I can just picture these millions and millions of people standing out there with their chants and slogans against this one guy, but you're not giving us that same reaction from where your vantage point is. Is that what you're saying? No, because, you see, it's, it's simply, you know, I know that sounds like a big deal over there, but it's, it's just a pretext, really. I mean, violent Muslims are inclined to this behavior anyway, and this just gives them a pretext and it's an excuse. Um, as an actual uh, act, um, I think burning this Quran is a bit unnecessary, uh, a bit too spectacular. But at the same time, I see it more as a protest against uh, the United States government and other Western governments in not throwing down the gauntlet in the face of Islam and standing up for it. It might be too much of a reaction. I don't know, but it's, you know, I I can't see why saying you hate the ideology of the enemy is so controversial. Paul McKeever has written a blog um, uh, talking about the... uh, the burning of the Quran by Terry Jones, and he says that the central message of all these folks is nobody should ever treat Islam with such irreverence because such irreverence will cause Islamists to resort to violence. <laughs> Can you imagine Islamists resorting to violence? <laughs> well, it's the same thing when, the, remember the Danish cartoons, it was, they were so offended that uh, Islam was suggested as a violent religion that so many Islamists resorted to violence. <laughs> <laughs> if that's all it takes... I think that uh, I don't. I, I think that they really have to beef up the uh, the people in Afghanistan, the soldiers over there, rather than say that, "Ooh, our soldiers are going to get hurt because Terry Jones is burning a Quran." No, because no, it, it, it's all a pretext. I mean, I mean, think of it the other way. What if what if Terry Jones were suddenly to say, um, "Look, I've changed my mind. A lot of people are going to have the hurt feelings, so let's just not do this." Do you think that uh, those who are planning violence are suddenly going to say, oh, "Hey, how about that? He's not such a bad guy after all. Let's just leave him alone." Of course not. Well, no. you know, it's a, funny you say that because I was arguing with someone yesterday. I said, "I said it's too late for that pastor to ba- to back out now because if he backs off now, Islam will claim a victory by winning. If he goes ahead." You know, Islam can say, well, we'll claim a victory by losing, because <laughs> they claim well, a victory all the time. So I don't think that's going to make any difference. Um, it's just, it's just the, I, the predictions here are that there will, will be a big upsurge in violence if this guy goes ahead with this. Would, would that be consistent with your experience there? It's hard to say. We, uh, what, I, what I find is that if it weren't for this, it would be something else, if you know what I'm saying. It yes, is, yes. It's looking for a pretext. And, and unfortunately, the Western apologists are, are standing behind that. Again, well, back to Paul McKeever's yeah. blog, I think that uh, he made another point in that the actual destruction of the Quran is an example of irreverence. And if you'd heard that clip, I don't know, did you hear the clip that we just came out of there, Paul, that comedic uh, clip? Yes, 
Yes, I caught that. Yes. Uh, he ended it by saying that I wish you had my sense of freedom of speech because as a comedian, he can be irreverent. But he <laughs> said, just try telling these jokes at the water cooler tomorrow. So in a sense, irreverence, while uh, Terry Jones may be doing that, uh, burning the Quran, it may be the only way of being able to speak your mind in such an environment where anything you might say is going to provoke uh, an Islamist. Well, let, let me ask you this for irreverence. It might be more, more subtle, but what do you think the reaction would be if, say, if I had a library and I didn't have the Quran next to King James Bible and Torah and Bhagavad Gita, but I put it next to Mein Kampf and Das Kapital? What, what do you think the reaction to that would be? Mm, good I think question. that's actually the more appropriate shelf. That's actually sort of what this show was just talking about today. It is, it, it is more deserving of it being in the political section uh, rather than a religious section because, I mean, it's not really teaching brotherly love or, or love of one's neighbor. It, it is, it's love of one's neighbor or die. Well, I don't think all politics is evil. There is good politics. So I, I think well, all, the book, all the books could be sitting on the political shelf in one way, shape, or form because they all have their roots in some political connection. In As the you past. started the show off saying, yes, yes. All, all religion is politics. But I, 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 do need to, I, I really do need to point out something people aren't saying. This behavior on the part of the violent Muslims, that is pre-Islamic in Arabic society. That this is how people behaved for thousands of years before then. And by tra making a religion, it, it sort of gave an excuse. It gave some sort of holy justification. So I can do something evil, and I don't have to come up with a, a reason or an excuse. I can just simply say, oh, it was God's will. And you remember, it took a thousand years to Christianize Europe, but only 20 years for the Arabs to convert to Islam. It was very convenient. That's an interesting observation. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And I have to say that, it's, that that's a bit of a new one to me. Uh, so you're saying that that was a pre-Islamic? Oh, yes, the, uh, this behavior, the, the behavior of, of Muhammad and, and his followers, that, that goes back hundreds of years before Islam. And by making it into a religion, it just simply gave a justification for... You see, most religions tell you to suppress your worst inclinations, where Islam tells you that your worst inclinations, they're holy, they're divine, you can go ahead and do it. Fascinating difference. Um, you know, I, I, I know I've been, he we're, we're running out of time now, so we're going to have to wrap up the show here, but I do know that John Thompson has been sending us some interesting and very scary material of late, um, predicting the possibility of some major conflict in Europe, and more importantly, talking about how, how Hamas is organizing in Canada and the U.S. and South America and the Caribbean. And I think that's a picture we're going to have to be, unfortunately, looking at it sometime in the future. But we're out of time for today. Thank you for joining us today, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. And we'll try and get a better connection next time. How about that, eh? <laughs> I hope so. Okay, you take care. And that's it for us today. And we hope you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, act right, do right, stay right. And be right back here next week. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bed clothes, everything will be all right. <laughs> Cell phones can give you brain tumors. And yet the anthrax only killed five people. Maybe the terrorists should have just called us on our cell phones. That would have been more effective. <laughs> ring, ring, ring. Hello? Iqba Allah. <laughs> ring, ring, ring. Hello? I called back again. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Ring, ring, ring. Hello? You have a collect call. Caller, say your name, please. Iqba Allah. Oh, 
Oh, roaming charges, you evil bastard. <laughs> 